Good day, everybody. This is Elliot, host of Mean Lady Talking Podcast and the author of Getting Past Your Breakup, How to Turn a Devastating Loss into the Best Thing That Ever Happened to You, Getting Back Out There, Secrets to Successful Dating and Finding Real Love After the Big Breakup, and the Getting Past Your Past Workbook, which is not currently available. It is January 2019, and I will have it available in the next few weeks. If you're coming to the program because you want to listen to the some of the Chris Watts analysis, I want to tell you a couple of things. One, I came on the internet in 2006 with the program Getting Past Your Past, which is what I taught in the 90s back in Massachusetts. The Getting Past Your Past website is in the Wayback Machine on the internet. And in October of 2007, I had already been teaching No Contact about breakup. When I did this first audio on this podcast, I said that doing audios for podcasts now brings me full circle because I first started out spreading the word about the Getting Past Your Past program on the internet by doing Audacity MP3 files and putting them up for sale. So I started with the basic Getting Past Your Past program and it did involve affirmations, boundaries, grief and loss, act as if, fence mechanisms, all the stuff that Getting Past Your Breakup and Getting Back Out There also entail. Within the first year, I added the After the Breakup. It was called After the Breakup at the time. And I introduced the concepts of no contact, of grief and loss, because I'm a grief and loss therapist and that's what I studied in graduate school and what I did all my theses on. I even did my my law thesis on grief and loss. I did grief and loss in the Eighth Amendment and victim impact statements. So a lot of the concepts that you will hear about, no contact, boundaries, affirmation, self-care, grief and loss, all that stuff was original to getting past your breakup and getting past your past. And people have kind of lifted a lot of those concepts from this program over the years. And no contact has become a standard advice in breakup literature. It's also been bastardized to a certain extent by people who are telling you to use it as a way to manipulate your ex to come back, which is completely against getting past your breakup philosophy. We don't do that. That's dysfunctional. It's passive aggressive. It's manipulative. It's horrible. Don't do it. And we don't want them back anyway. There are a few publications, I think Marie Claire was one of them, that recognizes me as the person who popularized the idea of no contact. Because I was all over the internet in 2005, 2006, if you go to the Wayback Machine, you can see in October 2007, there was a snapshot of the Getting Past Your Past website and after the breakup is on there. You would be hard pressed to find anyone else singing the praises of No Contact before October 2007. And that's the first incidence where you could see me doing it on the, the year before the October 2006 snapshot that's available on the Wayback Machine. It doesn't have after the breakup because I was working on that as an offering because the people that I was working with at the time were coming from a few different types of situations like losing a job or, or having a family illness or having some other situation that affects you. Anyway, so I wanted to introduce you as to who I am. And I wanted to let you know that I was an attorney and I still am an attorney. I'm still licensed to practice law. And I wanted to leave the therapeutic world behind. I was never able to do that after I graduated from law school in 2003. And I keep threatening to do that, to leave it behind. And I can't seem to be able to do it. People keep dragging me back in. It's been 15 years of me going, okay, that's it. I'm done. I'm just going to practice law. I'm not going to do this anymore. When I do my podcast, most of the time, I sit down the microphone and I talk. That's what I do. 
People that know me, people that follow the podcast know that's what I do. I very rarely work for an outline. I very rarely work in scripts. So you might hear me refer to some things. You might not know what I'm talking about if you've never listened to me before, if you don't know my articles. Because I've published so much on the gettingpassionbreakup.com website, I've published over 2,000 articles, but they're not all up there because of copyright infringement, which makes me absolutely crazy. So I only keep about 100 or so articles at the time, but if there's a subject about breakups, about self-improvement, even legal issues that you want to know about, let me know. Chances are I've written on it and I rerun articles all the time. I've done a few true crime articles and podcasts and I'm working on some more, but basically I sit down and I talk into a microphone. That's what I do. Some of my stories you'll know, some of my stories you won't know. I don't reintroduce myself every single time. If you're not familiar with my work, some of this stuff might be confusing to you. You might get to a place where you think I'm rambling or what the hell is she talking about this for? It's a subplot, this and that. The other thing that I do is I talk about my life a lot because getting past your breakup was my process. It's what I did. It's what helped me in my life. It's what turned my life around. And when I became a therapist, I just started teaching people what I knew, what I had done in my life. I had a difficult upbringing, a difficult childhood, a difficult teenagehood, a very abusive marriage. So when I came out, I didn't know anything. I didn't know how to do anything. I didn't know how to be anything. It was really, really traumatic. So to think that what worked for me would work for other people was actually shocking to me and shocking to me that it still continues to work. I get a little rattled by copyright infringers and people that just blatantly steal my stuff. So I not only weave my story in and out of the information that I impart to let people know that I'm not just a talking head. I have advanced degrees. I have a master's degree in psychology. I have a Juris Doctorate in law. I do not come and speak to you on high. I speak to you as somebody who has been through this, who has done it, and who has taught other people how to do it. Many different people over many years, many different situations, male, female, people here, people in other countries. I have clients all over the world, dang video chats, and I do groups and boot camps and everything, and I just continue teaching this. Weaving my story in and out not only tells you that I know what you're talking about and what you're feeling, and I'm not preaching at you, and I'm not judging you, and I'm not thinking that there's anything wrong with you, but I also do it so that people know that if they're going to lift something that I say, they're going to have to edit out all the parts of my story that illustrate what it is I'm saying. So good luck with that. There's a few different reasons. So I just want to let you know, if you're here just for the Chris Watts stuff, if you're not really interested in breakup stuff or anything else, that's fine. But I just want to let you know my style. If you have criticisms of it, that's fine. If you like it, please rate and review. If you don't like it, please don't rate and review. So anyway, here we go. And if you find anything confusing or upsetting or you don't know, or I wasn't clear about this or that, sometimes I move things around because I've said, something two or three times and I take it out. But anyway, that's who I am. And this is a different series. And I hope that you enjoy it. And if not, I hope at least you find some of the questions that I pose at the end interesting. If you want me to explain anything, if there's any questions that you have, if there's something that wasn't clear, I know that I do just sit down and talk. So I don't keep track sometimes. If anything is confusing, like I said, I don't go over my story. Every single time, my story is pretty much in the 37, 38 podcasts that came before this one. But please feel free to write Mean Lady Talking Podcast at gmail.com and we can continue the conversation. And I will definitely do another Watts series if 
I think that people's response warrants it. So if you have questions, comments, whatever, let me know. Mean Lady Talking Podcast at gmail.com and take care, everybody. Welcome to the Mean Lady Talking Podcast. This is the podcast that tackles tough questions about relationships, life, love, and loss. It may not be the advice you want, but it's probably the advice you need. And now here's your host, grief therapist, motivational speaker, relationship expert, best-selling author, and attorney, the not really mean, mean lady herself, Susan J. Elliott. Welcome back to our third episode of season two. What I wanted to do is I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the Chris Watts, Shanann Watts case. And I know that in my previous two podcasts that I've done for this year, I've said, I want to talk about Chris Watts. I don't want to talk about, is he a psychopath? Is he a sociopath? Is he a narcissist? Because I didn't think that that was instructive for anybody, especially for my listeners or my readers who are trying to deal with people that might have had personality disorders in the past. They might think, well, he's so outside the norm. I don't have to worry about the next person that I'm with being like Chris Watts or whatever. But as I started going through some of the case files to look at some things that I wanted to talk about, and I mostly wanted to talk about the things that would be instructive about Shanann, about some of the things she might have missed with Chris Watts, about some of the things that are being said about her, and how that kind of rolls into the relationship that they had as a couple and then also what happened with him going off the deep end. On the other part of the spectrum, over the past week, I've come into some conversations on some lawyer discussions when people were really talking about this plea agreement. And as an attorney, I looked at the plea agreement, I looked at the conversations among these lawyers and what they were saying, and it made a lot of sense to me that it that the plea agreement is odd. The whole thing is odd. And it doesn't it doesn't sit right with the psychological questions. And maybe I'm only picking this up because I'm an attorney and I'm a therapist. And maybe I'm only picking this up for that reason. And I hope that if you find this to be an interesting topic, that you follow it on your channel or your with your listeners or whoever it is, if you are talking about Chris Watts' case and only the Chris Watts case, and you're not coming to my channel because you're coming here because you had a breakup or you want to know about relationship. But I think that the plea agreement and the psychological questions, the intersection of those two things is very interesting and makes for a very interesting discussion that I haven't heard yet. And I'd like to hear it. So if you have a show, if you have a channel, if you have anything, I mean, feel free to use some of these questions. But before I get to those questions, I want to talk a little bit about why I'm going to define for you narcissism, antisocial personality, and the term we use, psychopath. The reason that I'm doing that is because I was looking at some YouTube videos and this one woman said, I don't understand, you know, people keep saying that Chris Watts was a narcissist and you look at the things that his friends said and his friends were like saying, oh, he's the nicest guy and he helped you move. And I saw 
videos of neighbors that said the same thing. That's a classic narcissist definition. And the woman was saying, I don't see how people could say he was a narcissist when everybody's saying had nothing but nice things to say about him. And one of the very classic textbook definitions of a narcissist is somebody who the whole world thinks is wonderful. And that's why I've had people in my practice for over 25 years coming in going, I'm with the most wonderful person in the world. Everyone loves them. And yet our relationship is falling apart. They're blaming it on me. It must be me because everybody loves him or her. And I suck and I know I suck and I don't know what's going on. And that's typically how the partner of somebody with a personality disorder, an undiagnosed personality disorder, because most of these things don't get diagnosed. And I'll go into a little bit about that as well. I get the partners of the personality disordered people coming into my practice going, help me, help me, help me. My partner was the greatest person since the fold of napkin. And I'm here alone and feeling awful, awful, awful because the greatest person in the world broke up with me and is trotting down the road with Mr. and Miss Universe and I'm miserable. And oh God, I made a mistake. And even though I was really unhappy in the relationship and they made me feel like hell, I want them back. Those are the people I get, okay? So I feel like there is a need to understand narcissism and antisocial personality and what we're calling a psychopath. And I think that uh, the discussion of Christopher Watts as whatever is really interesting because he exhibits all these different symptoms at different times. He's like a different person. And this kind of comes into the plea agreement that I was looking at as I was looking at part of this case. It all kind of comes together in a very confusing way. The first thing to understand is that I was a psychiatric clinician for years. And as I've explained in other podcasts, and I may explain again, if people want me to go into it, just let me know, because I don't know how deep or how surface you guys want me to go with some of these things, some of these more technical aspects of doing diagnoses. But you go into an evaluation and you're not going to go in and evaluate somebody in an emergency psychiatric services capacity with a personality disorder because personality disorders are not usually diagnosed in the emergency room. Usually the most common types of people with personality disorders that we see in the therapeutic milieu are people with borderline personality disorders. They make up a huge part of the therapeutic population is borderline personality. You'll see obsessive compulsive personality. You'll sometimes see paranoid personality disorder. But you won't see the narcissist, the antisocial personality. You won't see them in the therapeutic milieu. They don't think anything's wrong with them. And chances are you're not getting them anywhere near a clinician that would actually know what was wrong with them. And when they get into therapeutic situations with a couple's counseling, things like that, they try to snow them. I was with a narcissist. I know that everything he said to my therapist was a complete and utter lie. He wanted to make himself look good. He wanted to come off smelling like a rose, even though he was cheating, even though he was abusive, even though he was saying terrible things about me that were not true. He was never going to understand you're a narcissist. And he was never going to understand that there was anything wrong with him. When you do psychiatric evaluations, you're usually looking for the symptomology, the criteria according to the DSM. In the in the US, it's put out by the American Psychiatric Association. 
and it is the it is the diagnostic and statistical manual of psychiatric disorders so you go in and you have to figure out the frequency the symptomology each disorder has have to have so many symptoms over so long a period of time to a certain severity so usually the people that would show up in the emergency room would typically if they were not in the typical therapeutic milieu, meaning we didn't know who they were, they weren't a borderline personality disorder, they weren't bipolar, a lot of times somebody with bipolar, which is an axis one, it's not a personality disorder, an axis one mood disorder, they will really have a tough time evening out their moods and they might be well known to us in the psychiatric community. But if you have somebody who's having a situational problem, there was a death, there was a divorce, there was some problem, and they show up in the emergency room, you most likely would diagnose them with a major depressive episode if they're showing signs of depression. And you would then decide exactly how severe it was. If they were not talking self-harm, you would probably send them home. If they had a good support system at home, if not, you might take them into the shelter for a night. We had our own psychiatric shelter in some agencies that I worked for and other agencies. We had to find a shelter where they could go. But they might be so depressed that they have to go to a psychiatric hospital. So you make that decision. I know that a lot of times in Access One, if somebody was having a severe grief episode because I am a grief therapist, and I would think that they were having a very normal and natural reaction to a loss, which is grief, which is what I pound on the desk all the time. Feel your grief, feel your grief, feel your grief. And as a grief therapist, I would be at odds with my psychiatric training, which would tell me to have this grief person as a major depressive episode. And I would think, nope, I'm going to give them adjustment disorder, just meaning that they're having a little bit of trouble adjusting to this situation. I didn't want major depressive episode to, to carry them through life when it really was a normal and natural response to loss. My colleagues would disagree with me there, but I didn't care. I felt ethically correct when I would give them an adjustment disorder. When you go in there and you would not see narcissistic personality disorder, what you see is the partners of people with per narcissistic personality disorders and so you would have to kind of diagnose this person the partner the ex-partner through the eyes of the person that you're now sitting with and many times when you're dealing with the partner of a narcissist they think that everything they have done is wrong i know that that's how i felt when i came out some people attempt to break narcissists into overt narcissism and covert narcissism there is a lot of overlap sometimes I know that my first husband had the intimidated personality of the overt narcissist, but he wasn't the high achieving person. And he did have that hypersensitivity to criticism that the covert narcissist does. And he had an unrealistic expectation of other people like the covert narcissist. So I think that chopping them into covert and overt is kind of a waste of time sometimes. But I did a couple of podcasts, and I'll put them in the show notes, uh, 
about healthy narcissism and healthy ego and how people with low self-esteem are usually the people that I get. They're not usually the narcissist of the world. But there are some narcissists that have antisocial features. And I talk about Jodi Arias like that. I would think that the woman is a sociopath. I think she's a narcissist. I think she's manipulative. I think she's, I think she has borderline personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder, and antisocial personality disorder. I think she's a mess. But the last thing she is, is a domestic violence victim. That she's not. She's everything else. There's also a subtype of a narcissist, the amorous narcissist, somebody who's very seductive, somebody who is a pathological liar, which Jodi Arias absolutely is a, is a pathological liar. There are different subtypes of narcissists, and I also believe that a lot of those are overlapping, that one person could have two or three features of all these different subtypes. So it can get very muddled. But one of the things that narcissists crave is approval from other people, which is why their outside life will look the way that it does, which many times is successful and all together and things like that. And I just want to talk to people because I get this all the time in our Getting Past Your Breakup Facebook group. We get people in there all the time who say, I feel so lonely. I feel like a failure. I look at all these people's lives on Facebook and everybody's living these great lives and doing these great things. And I'm such a loser and blah, blah, blah. And I always call them fake book lives. They're fake book lives. I know so many people on Facebook that sometimes when I look at their photos, I cringe because I know that this is not the happy family that they're showing here. It's just not happening. And they're putting on this play for the world that really doesn't really exist. And I get the readers of those pages saying, oh my God, I feel like such a loser when I look at them. But if you look at the walk, they had that crystal ball life where you want to look at and say, oh, this is terrific. And I know that Shanann was doing the social media because she was doing so well with her products and her business. And one of the things that I'm going to talk about is victim blaming in hearing some of the apologists for Chris Watts and some of the criticism of Shanann Watts. I just think it's really horrible. And the name of this podcast is Mean Lady Talking Podcast because I don't mince words. I do not mince words. And if I think that somebody, good, bad, or indifferent, alive or dead, the most revered person in the world, the most hated person in the world, whatever it is, I'm going to talk about that person the way I think I should talk about that person. So I do not mince words. If I thought that there was criticism of Shanann Watts to be had, I would have it. But I would have to say that the instruction that we take from Shanann Watts and some of the things that she might have missed, there's a couple of things that we can learn from it. But at no point do I think that there is any relevance for criticizing Shanann Watts. If Chris Watts went to trial, there would not be questions of fact about Shanann's personality. It would not be relevant. It would not get in. I'm, they're not going to put her personality on trial. It's not going to happen. And when I hear it happening in YouTube videos or people basically saying, you know, she was a controlling harpy, I, it makes me crazy because it feels like blaming the victim. And even though they're saying, oh, it's not like I'm blaming the victim, I'm just saying, 
No, no, no. You are blaming the victim and I don't like it. And it's not just that it's disrespectful, but it's irrelevant. There's really nothing that we need to know about that. But people who are under reactors like Chris Watts was, there is plenty of evidence from the things that I've read about him, that I've listened to about him, that I've researched about him, that says he was very much the underreactor. And people in my practice, people in my boot camps, people in my seminars, people that work one-on-one with me, they know that that type A personality will take over for the underachiever. And the underachiever will almost always drag the overachiever down. And I say this all the time because I get people, most likely women, in my practice where they're running around from here and there, taking charge of everything, writing everything down, making the to-do list, packing the lunches, getting the kids off to here and there, doing this, doing that. They're in charge and they're running the ship. I just finished up a boot camp with somebody who is a very dynamic and wonderful young woman who seemed to be getting involved with what I I call lumps. They just had these lack of personality, lack of drive, lack of where the hell are we going? What the hell are we doing? And I talk in my book, Getting Back Out There, I talk about the 3 a.m. person. And when you are a type A personality with a can-do personality and a list-driven personality, and you've got Mr. Thumb Up His Ass standing behind you going, I don't know what to do. You're going to run over that person because that's what you do. And many times, and I'll talk about Shanann and her illness and things like that at some other time, but as the type A personality, you are kind of pulling up the rear with this person. Like, come on, come on, let's do this, let's do that. And the person that Shanann was in this kind of type A personality can do attitude would be exactly the type of person that Chris would be attracted to. Now, if it was just an underreactor, overreactor, that would be one thing. And what happens in that relationship, and you see it, if it was just a normal divorce, they got divorced, they would just be like a million other couples who came to a point where the things that you liked about the person at the beginning of the relationship is now the thing that's driving you crazy about them. And that is why in my book, Getting Past Your Breakup, I go through the relationship inventories because I want people to think about that. What was it about this person that you were really attracted to and now drives you crazy? And many times it's in those imbalanced relationships where the person who's the do, 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 doer is dragging the lump and they get to a point and the lump is now resentful. The lump is now resentful that we're wherever the hell we are because wherever we are is the type A personality's idea because we weren't in charge. We were not the captain of the ship. We were just rowing in the back that's what we were doing we weren't making any plans going anywhere doing anything they're just underreacting and normally in these relationships what happened to the watts is what happened not the murders but this tearing apart where he thinks i'm getting out from under and he describes this in the police interview he describes being able to find out who he is again in the time that Shanann is gone with the kids. 
oh my god like this is who i am but you have to wonder if he would have uncovered that without nicole kessinger who was his mistress who was the woman who supposedly was the whole reason for this whole horrible and horrifying family tragedy murders before we go into narcissism personality disorders i want you to think about just the underreactor, the overreactor, the type A personality with the underreactor. This is a classic pairing. So anybody who wants to say, oh, she was a controlling harpy, blah, 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 you've got to check yourself at the door because if you don't understand how these relationships happen, then you're blind to most of human behavior because this is a very typical pairing, the underreactor with the type A personality, the controlling harpy. She's a controlling harpy. Well, he's a mass murderer of innocent little children put them together and figure out which one we would rather spend the night with oh good lord okay anyway and one thing that i wanted to talk about is when i first was listening to one of shanann's videos and she was talking about her health issues before i really knew what was wrong with her as soon as i was listening to her i knew she was talking about lupus because i have lupus and when she was talking about being in pain and nobody really understands you and no, everybody thinks you look fine and you're dying inside. You're in so much pain and every day is so difficult to get through. I know exactly what that feels like. So when she was describing it, even though she never named it as lupus, I knew that's what she was talking about. And she talked about being in a controlling and controlling an abusive relationship prior to meeting Chris and prior to her diagnosis of lupus. And I know that when I was diagnosed with lupus, it was a real difficult experience. I thought that I had multiple sclerosis and that's what I was really worried about. And lupus is uh, still a chronic illness and I've never been really sick in my entire adult life. So struggling with this over the past five years or so has been really tough. So when I was listening to her, I heard lupus and she was talking about being in a controlling abusive relationship. And I know that when you don't feel well and there are people around you who are not taking care of you. And I remember being married to my first husband and I threw my back out one morning. I was trying to get the kids out the door, the dog out the door. I got tangled up in the dog's leash. I went down. I couldn't even move. I had to go to the hospital. That's how, how much pain I was in. Like I couldn't even move. I had to get somebody to get my mother to get over here and get the kids. And I had to go to the hospital. I had to get a friend, take me to the hospital, blah, blah, blah. And I get back home and this all started at like seven o'clock in the morning and I get back home at like one, two o'clock in the afternoon. I pick up the kids, I get them lunch or snacks or whatever it was. And I just went them in their rooms across from mine and I got an ice pack and I went to, to lay down and my husband came in and he's screaming at me. What are you doing in bed? It's four o'clock in the afternoon. Bah, bah, bah. And I didn't even get a chance to tell him what was wrong. There was never any empathy for me being sick and I wasn't sick that often but whenever I was I mean he would always grill me and act like I should be up doing whatever so you have two broken arms and a broken leg you need to be up and be doing whatever and he was always like that and I know that when I first was diagnosed with lupus it seemed like a lot of people didn't care I didn't know if it was because I looked okay or they just didn't want to deal with me being sick but it's a very lonely place to be it really is it's a really difficult place to be when you are not feeling well and the world kind of thinks that you should just get up and perform 
And if you've been in a controlling and abusive relationship and you find somebody at the time when you're feeling alone, it's very powerful. And when Shanann was describing some of how Chris was with her, she could have been ripe for the picking. She could have been the woman who has having health issues and he's going to comfort her and he's going to be the good guy. He's going to be the savior. He's going to come in and he's going to rush to her side. Now that could be classic narcissism of somebody who has really low self-esteem because that's what it sounds like. And he wants to rush in and be the good guy and show her that her and the world and her parents did nothing but sing his praises saying that he would hold her on his lap. And if she fell asleep because she didn't feel well, he would just sit there and not move for her to relax because she was having so much trouble sleeping that if she fell asleep on his lap, he wouldn't move for hours while she got some sleep. And when Shanann's talking about Chris and that kind of Chris, she says he's the best thing that ever happened to her. And one of the things that I want to talk about being instructive with Shanann and in no way be disrespectful to her is something that I've been saying all along and it's something that I want to kind of end this with before we go into what is a real narcissist, what is a real sociopath, and then to talk about the plea deal. But one of the things that I want to talk about as I end this podcast session and start the next one is when you are focused out, you do not do enough observation. And this is one of the things that I stress over and over again in my individual counseling, in my group counseling, in my boot camps, in getting past your breakup and getting back out there. I talk about observation, observation, observation. I talk about coming off social media sometimes. And I understand that Shanann was doing this for her business, but there was a point where you're doing something for the camera and you're losing sight of what's going on in your own life. And again, this isn't about blaming the victim. This is about one of the things that I've had to say about observation and technology. And I've been saying it for years now, turn off the phone and many people say to me, I didn't even realize how much I did it until you made me stop doing it unplug, start 20 minutes in the morning, 20 minutes at night. I will go in airplane mode all weekend long. And I will tell people, you can text me, you can email me, you can do whatever you want, but I'm going to basically be unplugged all weekend while I read, while I do my research. Even now that I'm, even though I'm recording a podcast, I'm basically unplugged. I don't have email up. My phone's not on. Nothing is going on. And I will probably delve into a little bit more research before I continue on with the series. But I have been harping on the get unplugged and observe and observe and observe. And I know that Shanann was seeing something was wrong. Something was changing. And unfortunately, she had been away for those weeks and he got this whole thing in his head over what he was going to do and I'm sure that they were running into money problems he was getting swept away with the relationship with this Nicole Kessinger who's a wacko as far as I can tell and I'll go into that too but he felt the old Chris coming back 
person that kind of has been riding on her coattails so far and being part of her little play. And now he was in his own little play with him and Nicole Kessinger, and he liked this play better. And he probably looked at the fact that they were already in financial hot water. She was going to have a third kid. You're talking about how much child support he was going to pay, how much alimony he was going to pay. And chances were he just went right over the edge and saw those dollar signs and he was going to be miserable. And he took a very, very wrong turn. But I will talk about how we determine what he could possibly be, how we can learn something from that. I want to talk again a little bit about Shanann and what we can learn from her and where she was at the time of the disappearance or the murder. And and we'll do that in the next episode. Talk to you soon. This is Susan Elliott, Mean Lady Talk Podcast, gettingpassionbreakup.com. Sign up, review, rate us. Thank you very much. Talk to you guys real soon.